Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. And I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Jude. Uh, It's a total of one chapters. So I don't think, now it may still take us weeks to get through it, but, um, but it, this morning what I'd like to do to begin is read the book of Jude in its entirety so you can get the picture of it, and then we're just going to spend a couple of minutes talking about verses 1 and 2 uh, to get this rolling. So I hope that this will be a blessing to you, and my prayer is that God will use these words to, um, to speak to your heart and to lead you as His Spirit sees fit. So let's begin with the reading of the book of Jude, and then um, we'll pray this into our lives. Um, Jude chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you would contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down for the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by the winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, 
The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these words. Thank you for giving them to us. Thank you for caring for your church, loving the body of Christ leading us along and not leaving us to this world to figure things out on our own. Thank you for giving us wisdom and for sending the apostles and the prophets, for giving us the word of God that you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you would continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds as we study and read. Lead us in repentance. Lead us in worship. May you be glorified by us and our fellowship. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to take a few minutes and uh, talk about verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now, this is typically what some would call a, a greeting at the beginning of this letter, and you find similar types of greetings in uh, Paul's letters, in Peter's letters, and, uh, you know, in Jude, of course, right here. So, so these are, you know, what you would kind of find uh, sometimes maybe even to skim over because it's somewhat common. You would see this at the beginning of a letter that was written to the church. Sometimes we would just might say, you know what, this is a general greeting to the church. It's kind of common. But when I look at this and I consider the words that are spoken about the church, the way Jude addresses the church, the way Paul addresses the church, the way John addresses the church and Peter addresses the church, these are actually not common in our culture. This is not a common greeting. This is a very uncommon greeting, although it was common for the church, and it's very special. So I wanted to take a few minutes to look at some of these words, uh, some of the things that we notice in this. The first is that um, just notice the calling that we have right here at the beginning. Some, a lot of times the writers of these letters would identify themselves, specifically here, Jude. Uh, he's known as also Judas and Thaddeus uh, in uh, the New Testament. Now, 
He's not the same Judas, obviously, as the one who betrayed Jesus. And so some would say that maybe he changed his name so as not to be, uh, so as to distinguish himself from the Judas who betrayed Jesus. Some believe that maybe the church changed his name so that they could distinguish that. Uh, some uh, maybe believe that it was changed for another reason, maybe because he came to trust in, maybe at that point in time in which he came to trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior. It's really unclear, but regardless, notice how he identifies himself. He identifies himself as the brother of James, who is the brother of Jesus. So we know he's the half-brother of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't start out by identifying himself as the brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as the brother of James, but he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Now we know that Judas, or this Judas, Jude, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle means to be sent out. So he was specifically sent out by Jesus to proclaim the words of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the kingdom of God. He had a very special mission from Jesus Christ for the world and for the church. And he was identifying himself as that person, the one who was given that role. And so he was sending the authority of his words back to Jesus Christ, saying that he's not saying this on his own authority, but on the authority of the one whom he serves, Jesus Christ. As the brother of James, distinguishing him from Judas, the other Judas, he is saying, I am speaking these words to you, the church, on the authority of Jesus Christ, and they ought to be received as such. So first of all, at the beginning of this letter, there's kind of a general call to you and I as readers and to anyone who might read this letter that we ought to accept these words as authoritative. These are God's words being spoken through Judas, Jude, and they are for the purpose of being absorbed into our lives and creating transformation and life change for us and for our church. Now, this is kind of a, what's considered a general letter. A lot of Paul's letters were sent to specific churches, like the church in Ephesus or the churches in the Galatian region. This is kind of a uh, general letter, which was most likely circulated all over the place and given to many churches to read. So Jude is sending this out, and he's also addressing... Uh, those of us who live in the end times. Now, we may not, we may or may not be in the end times, depending on how you look at things. But what we do know is that when we look at the words of Jude, we can begin to see things in our culture and in our time that seem to mirror this exactly. So he begins by saying, I have an address for you, and you first need to recognize there's this general calling that it needs to be received as the authoritative word of God. So before I go too much further, I think all of God's word uh, needs to be received in this way, that it is from God, and it is on the authority of God that we ought to receive it. So specifically, that God's word reveals to us the law of God, the holiness of God. He, it reveals to us our offensive nature towards God as sinners and how much we need a Savior. And it reveals to us our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the general call of the word of God is for salvation, is for us to repent of our sins and follow Jesus as our Savior. So before I expound on anything else in this letter, before you could even attempt to try to interpret or understand or apply anything else in this letter, 
The first requirement is that you see that it's from God and you surrender to Jesus as your Lord and Savior and surrender to these words as the authority in your life. So it's a general call to be saved. And if you're listening online or if you're in the room and you're at all wrestling with salvation, before you try to be a Christian and act like a Christian, first we must receive Jesus and trust in him. So that's if, if that's where you stop this morning and you don't hear anything else I say, I encourage you to just pray through that this morning for the rest of this time. But notice something else we see in here that I think is really neat. Um, not just this general calling, but we see uh, how we as a church are identified. This is our identity. And we often skim over these words and say, wow, that's special. Let's move on to the meat. But we really ought not skip this because there are some rich things that he says about the church, the way he identifies the church. Notice this in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, or if you're reading in the King James Version, it will say sanctified, and kept for Jesus Christ. To those who are called, beloved, and kept. Or for some of your versions, sanctified. Or that word kept might say preserved. This is what he calls them. This is how he identifies them. As This is how when he sends this letter out to whoever might read it, he's addressing those people who might recognize themselves in those words. Now, our culture tends to put distinction, all kinds of distinctions on us. Even in the name of saying that we ought not have distinctions, we are tearing our world apart with varying hurtful distinctions and things that really have no bearing on our eternity. But God gives us distinctions that are quite unique from everything else that this world might say about us. And as believers, we ought at the very least to see each other this way. And when we come together as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to see each other this way, not the way the rest of the world sees people. This is our identity. And so he's identifying the people that he wants to apply this message. He calls them three things here. They're the called, they are the beloved, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. Now let's notice a couple things about this word called. It's different, I think, than the general calling that we might pull from the very first part of this, that general call into salvation and that the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone to all the world, to Jews and Gentiles, that all people might believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. But there is this different kind of calling. It is an effective work of salvation that God accomplishes in the life of an individual. Now we notice that these three things that we see are all done by God, not done by people. This calling and this this um, beloved, this identity as the beloved of God and being kept by God for Jesus Christ. That is a work of God that can only be accomplished by his power. But let's, I'd like to read a scripture and uh, you guys, if y'all been in any of our community groups or if you've heard me preach at all over the last uh, few months, y'all gonna be like, here he goes again. But I'm gonna read Romans 8 uh, verses 28 through 30 again, because I think this gives us a really great picture of calling, this effective calling unto salvation that God gives to us. Romans 8 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So he effectively works all things to the good for those who are called according to his purpose. But what is his purpose? And the next verses detail his purpose. 
Look at what he says in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, which means that he loved them before the foundations of the world. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Meaning he decided beforehand to conform these people into the image of Jesus. To mold them and shape them into the image of his son. Remember, we went, in the last few weeks we... We went through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and some in Revelation. We talked about being the imagers of God, how we've been called to be the imagers of God, and sin has corrupted that image. But God has ordained that as those who are being saved, that we are being uh, molded into the image of Christ as he has designed us to be. He says, we are to be conformed to the image of his son so that we, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. We are his brethren. And then he says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. Just by way of reminder again, all of these are past tense. All of these have been accomplished by God and in, in the eyes of a God who is not bound by time and is outside of time, even our future glorification that we look forward to is already accomplished. It's already done. And we look forward to that. So when, when Jude addresses us as the called, he is saying we are the ones who are realizing that those rich truths that we read in Romans 8, those are ours. That's our identity. That's who we are. We're foreknown. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. We are called and we have effectively been justified so we no longer have to fear the wrath of God and we look forward to the glorification where all things will be made new. What a beautiful identification. We are the called. Now this is a, I believe that's a special calling that's quite different from the general calling that goes out to the whole world. And then you see it more clearly when he calls us the beloved or the sanctified. Now, if you really want to get into textual criticism, those are actually two different Greek words. And that's, you can talk to me about that after church. In the King James, it uses a word that's translated sanctified. And in uh, a lot of the other modern translations, it uses a word that specifically means beloved. It's agape. Very different words. But uh, the application and the implications are very much the same. So to be sanctified is to be called out of something and set apart for something specific, something holy, or something, um, something special. So we have been called out of the world of common and, and placed into a world of special. We have been called out of uh, those who have been condemned and placed into a, um, into a hope of of righteousness and salvation in our Savior Jesus Christ. We are set apart for God and made holy, separate from this world. But he calls us his beloved, which is more than just a being a recipient of love. It's more than just experiencing love. It is our, not just our experience of love, it's our identity because he calls us the beloved. It's one thing for me to say, that I love my children or, or for my children to experience my love or my mother and father to experience my love or my Christian brother or sister to experience my love. But it's another for me to call someone my beloved. I hope that if I were to call, be talking about my beloved, you would either interpret that to be my wife or my Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, and ultimately my Savior, Jesus Christ, is, is my first love. But 
This is something quite different. It is a statement about identity. It's who we are. So it's both what we experience and it's both our na- and it's our name. And so God, in calling us into salvation, sets us apart for him and calls us his beloved, which is, it's just a deep, affectionate love from the Father on behalf of those whom he has saved. Now we see it in greater depth when he calls us kept, which is pretty, you know, preserved, that we are kept by the Father for Jesus Christ. Now that word kept means to guard or to watch or to protect or to preserve. Uh, it, is, it is a word that means that we, by, on, by the power of God, are being preserved in a world that is constantly corrupted by sin and affecting us because we live in it. But God is actively working in us much in the same way as he is. He is conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He is actively working in us to preserve us and keep us along the way because we've been set apart, not just that we've been set apart to be gods, to be holy, but we've been set apart specifically as the bride of Christ. We have been chosen to be Jesus's bride and he will not let his bride be given to another. He will keep us in this world. So there's a couple scriptures I want to look at that help see that. One is John 17, uh, what's commonly called the uh, high priestly prayer. Uh, There's a section of this Jesus is talking. He's having a conversation with the Father. The Son is having a conversation with the Father. And he's talking about his sheep. He's talking about us, his church, his people. He's talking about his love for his people. He's talking about his Father's love for his people and how he is doing the will of his Father by keeping his people. And by protecting them and leading them and providing the way of salvation. And he's talking about how he's going to leave the world and he's entrusting us into the Father's hands to keep us while he is not with us. And so this is what he says. And if we start, you could read the whole thing, but I'm just going to jump in at about verse 9 in John 17. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. So that's a very specific ask. He's not asking on behalf of all the people of the world. He's asking specifically on behalf of the, the saved, the called, the beloved, the, uh, those being kept for Christ Jesus. All right? He says, I'm, I, I, I'm going to just read it again because I'm stuttering. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. So there's that relationship between the Father and the Son that is very much a unity, all right? So anybody questioning the, uh, the deity of Christ needs to wrestle with these words. And then you see this, he says, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, and that's Judas, um, the, the one who betrayed Jesus, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your world, or excuse me, I've given them your word. 
big difference. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. There is this concept of keeping. Jesus was keeping us in a world of difficulty and he's handing us over to the Father to keep us in the way that he has chosen until the day that we will be united to him as the bride. This is the work that Christ is accomplishing on our behalf and doing for us. One more scripture that I'd love to read that kind of captures a similar concept is John chapter 6. We'll go back a few more chapters This first verse is really common. Jesus said to them in verse 35, John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. We're very familiar with that. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Not may come to me, not might but they will come to Jesus. All, everyone that the Father gives will come. So this is, this is the assurance that we get in the work of a holy and powerful God to bring us to salvation. What a great assurance to know that it's God accomplishing that in us, not our own righteousness. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. What a great hope. That anyone who cries unto the Lord for salvation in spirit and in truth, Jesus will not cast away. That's a great hope because I think there's a lot of people coming to the Lord, crying out to salvation while recognizing the depth of their depravity and wondering how a holy God could love someone like them or someone like me. But to hear Jesus say, if you come to me, I will certainly not cast you out. What What a blessed promise from a God who never breaks a promise. And then he says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's his Father. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. Every person God the Father gives to Jesus to save, he saves. He will not lose a single one, a single sheep. And then he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Meaning we may look forward to the first physical death. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then we will not look forward or dread the second death. We will look forward to eternal life with our Savior Jesus Christ because we are being kept Until that day, we are being kept as the bride of Jesus Christ. So Jude, uh, he is addressing them, uh, those who are listening, those who are reading this. He's specifically speaking to the church. I think it's really good for us as believers to recognize this is our identity. Very rarely do you find in the New Testament any of the apostles addressing the church members as sinners, as wicked people. They are being addressed as holy ones. Saints, called, beloved, those being kept for Christ Jesus, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. All these wonderful, rich things that speak to our identity. That's who we are because that's what God's accomplishing in us. Now, now I recognize Jude's not actually trying to expound on that for us to learn that this morning. He's just calling us that. 
He's saying, I've got something to say to you, those of you who are called and those of you who are the beloved of God and those who are being kept for Jesus Christ. But what a great thing to slow down and consider those words and consider what it is that God's done for us. But what does he say next? Before he gives any teachings and before he gives any admonitions, and if you notice when I read this, there's a pretty thick section in here that's pretty, pretty scary. It's about the judgment of God and the, wicked, un, the wickedness of ungodly people. And he's, he mentions, he uses the word ungodly like six times in one chapter, right? So there's a lot of that that's coming up, a lot of warning for the church. But before he does that, notice what he starts with for the believers. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. He says, as I, about, I'm about to expound on some things that you as a church are going to need in the upcoming years as believers, as a church. But one of the things I want, I would love for God to do for you and love for you to experience in your identity as the called, as the beloved, as those being kept for Jesus Christ, is I would love for you to experience the mercy and the peace and the love of God being multiplied in your life. That word multiplied means to increase or it means to be abundant. Now we know that the riches of being called and being the beloved and being kept for Jesus Christ are abundant. If you read Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, you can't hardly get your head around the concepts that are in those chapters, that are the, the words that are so filled with riches about who we are in Christ Jesus. But we do live in a world where we lose sight of that. We live in a culture where even as a church, we recognize that we kind of in, have in common that we believe in Jesus together. But sometimes we forget to see each other as, call, as those who are called of God to salvation, as those who are the beloved of God. We forget to see each other as those who are being kept for Christ Jesus. We forget to see each other with that kind of affectionate love. And sometimes because of the darkness of the world and the difficulty of life, we forget the blessings that, we, that are actually true about us. We lose sight of them. And it would be Jude's desire that we as a church have an understanding and a knowledge of God's mercy that is rich and increasing every day. It would be Jews' desire that we would have a knowledge of God's peace that would be rich and increasing every day. It would be his desire that we as a church would know God's love. And that knowledge would be rich and increasing every day. That, that's what he's saying. My wish for you, my hope for you, my prayer for you. It's kind of a blessing. And a lot of the writers of the New Testament say that for the church. And that's why I think maybe this is one of the best, maybe a, at least a portion of what scripture means when it says to greet one another with a holy kiss. It's to look at each other this way and speak to each other this way. That this is how we greet one another. This is how we conclude our conversations with one another. Not just words to say like it's, a, like it's just a, um, in Jesus' name I pray, amen, at the end of your prayer every day. It's, it's a, these are rich things that we want to see invested in each other's lives. That when we look at each other, we see each other through the eyes of God that sees us as redeemed, not wicked people. I think it's very easy for us sometimes to get caught up as, as believers in uh, all the faults we see in each other. We try to ignore them for a while, but let's face it, we're not as long-suffering as God is. 
So after a while, we start seeing people's faults more than we see their qualities. And I think God is exemplifying through the apostles that we ought to see each other's um, identity in Christ Jesus first and foremost and always. And uh, the patience of God, and we, as we studied Wednesday night in community group, the patience of God should be matching as best we can the patience of our Father in heaven. And so he calls us to love one another in this way. So we see that we, are, we have this general calling to submit to the authority of God and through our Savior Jesus. We see this wonderful identity, and then we see how we are loved, that we are loved and ought to love one another in this way. This is a general greeting, but these are not light words. So my, one of my, my prayers this morning is that we consider that this is how we ought to greet one another. And this is how we pray for one another. And that when we meet together as a church, whether it be community groups or church on Sunday morning or just hanging out after church, or when we find out something's going on in somebody's life and we show up for them throughout the week, or uh, we send somebody a text message or a phone call or whatever it may be, the way we minister to each other as brethren, as, as the called, that we are striving together to see the mercy of God, the peace of God, and the love of God abounding in each other's lives. That that is one of the primary goals of our fellowship together, that we see that. So now there's more to this letter that we are also to add to that fellowship. There's some admonition. There's some rebuke. There's some accountability, there's some discernment that we have to apply together as brothers and sisters. But first and foremost, let's recognize that we're brothers and sisters. I think this is extremely, extremely rich. We see these examples in Galatians 6. Paul says, peace and mercy be upon them. Paul says to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father. Peter uh, says in 1 Peter, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He says in 2 Peter, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And here he says in Jude, he says in Jude, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And that will be my prayer this morning. In hearing these words, in recognizing your calling, hopefully by way of reminder of these rich teachings, that you're encouraged, but also that... Um, you would see the mercy and the peace and the love of God abounding in your lives. Um, and I think as John preached last week, uh, some of the primary ways we see that on an individual basis is by daily spending time in his word, being reminded of, of what God says and spending daily time in prayer, seeking the face of God, abiding with Christ. I think that that is a necessary tool for us walking in this kind of a love and greeting for one another. So let's pray together this morning. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.